We doing okay? <laughs> I mean, I just feel like, why even ask questions? Uh, I'm just like, go ahead and talk. Um, well, if you don't know me, my name is Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister at RU App for Reform University Fellowship, which is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus, but also you all, wherever and whoever you are. Um, before I kind of tell you a little bit more about RU App, I also just want to reintroduce um, our interns, Rachel and Ruben. I'm going to raise your hands. Uh, remember, they can do the fun stuff, right? Um, <laughs> they're doing rides, and I can do the wait list. Um, but if we haven't, any of us haven't met you before, we'd love to meet you and hang out with you. Um, all of us drink a lot of coffee, so um, that's always a, a sure bet. So anyway, um, REF, is, REF exists for you wherever you are, whoever you are. And what that really just means is basically that if you, it's not for one kind of person. It's for any kind of person from any scene on campus or any personal background, and we really try to mean that, and we mean that even with what you thought would be perhaps the most, um, the bar of entry, which would be where you are at Jesus or Christianity. We really just want you to feel free to be wherever you are here, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, or whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic. We're so glad you're here, and we hope that you feel free to be in process about where you are, and I especially want to welcome you if you're new. Um, I know that takes, a, that takes a little bit of a risk and takes some time, so I really appreciate that. So thanks for coming. Okay, so this semester in large group, uh, we've been, begun to study the life of Simon Peter, and I'm calling this series Stumbling into a Run. Okay, Stumbling into a Run. So right next to Jesus, Simon Peter is at the center of the New Testament, that last third of the Bible that uh, goes from Matthew all the way to the book of Revelation. Uh, and perhaps, Jesus in, or perhaps Peter's at the center because he's so relatable. Um, he can be impulsive, quick to speak, and slow to listen, hyper-aware of what people think of him. Uh, that, he's, that is, he's like us. He's prone to stumble from time to time, right? But then he also, Peter shows this enduring virtue of self-honesty, of trying again and again in the face of failures. That is, Peter encourages all of us to run towards Jesus, even in a winded world. And so... But more than showing us what faith looks like, Peter shows us what Jesus looks like. And that's what's so beautiful is to watch Jesus' patience, Jesus' mystery, and Jesus' fierce friendship with Peter over and over again in all these different settings. Um, I was talking to John Lim earlier. I think it's interesting. Most of the settings are around a boat. I don't think I realized how many boat scenes there were until I started doing the series. But aside, aside, that one's for free. That one's for free. Um, anyway, a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at Jesus' Jesus and Peter uh, in the first few meetings. Again, your boats, one of them at least. Um, and then, this beginning last week, we kind of took a look at a 24-hour period, a one day in the life of Simon and Jesus. I don't know if you knew this, but basically there's a, a series where um, Jesus heals a bunch of people, feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, then prays for hours, then walks on water, and the next mornings are seen. So we're really just looking at a slice of Jesus and Peter's life. Okay, this is this happens one year before Jesus goes on the cross and dies outside of Jerusalem, um, and it is recorded by all four gospels, which is really interesting. There are not many days in the life of Jesus that are recorded by all four gospels, and this is one of them. So a lot of things have happened in this one day. And so really our passage tonight, John chapter 6, is picking up the story the next morning. Okay, the morning after, post-Jesus walking on water, 
post uh, sunrise back in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. The huge crowd has somehow made its way around the lake and has followed Jesus into a, what I would imagine be a small <laughs> local Jewish synagogue where Jesus is telling them about who he is and he's using this big metaphor called, uh, he calls himself the bread of life. But before we go there, that next morning event, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time uh, that we get to look at your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it, um, to pour over it, um, to, to place ourselves in it, in the story, uh, to think about how we're like and unlike Peter, how um, Jesus might meet us. And I pray that you'd be with our hearts, um, wherever they are, um, if they're distant, if they're near, if our thoughts are wandering or laser-like focused, uh, I pray that you'd be with us. Uh, be with all the feelings we have being in this room. Uh, maybe maybe this feels like an hour already wasted for some of us. Maybe this feels like the best part of the week. Maybe this um, feels like another thing on the schedule. And I pray that you'd be with us and you'd meet us where we are. And that's your promise. And uh, that's your promise even in this passage. And I pray that you'd uh, make yourself, Jesus, more believable and more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. In your name we pray. So last Saturday morning, my wife and I did what many people in the greater Lake Norman suburban suburban area did. Do they do this? So we woke up at 7:30 a.m. We filled a rolling cooler full of tropical punch capri sun and snack-sized pouches of goldfish. Okay, wait, it gets even more relevant to college. We slid this cooler into, uh, along with a few collapsible chairs into uh, a 2010 Honda Odyssey maroon. And we also put our children in there. Then we... <laughs> the maroon minivan, not the cooler. Uh, and then we then we drove for 10 minutes listening to children's music until we arrived at a football field that was covered with pop-up goals uh, for four to six-year-old children and their parents who were standing around these goals. Yes, this past Saturday morning, my children played and I coached not one, but two youth soccer games. What did you do this past Saturday morning? I want to know. I really want to know. Ramsey did, but you know what? I want to wait for that teaser. Um, but anyway, I found myself by myself in charge. This is the first game, first outing of a handful of four-year-old boys and girls trying to teach them the rules of soccer mid-game. Uh, it was a, it was barely organized chaos, really. Uh, and to make things worse, when we started to play, uh, I realized that our team was absolutely terrible. Just horrendous. We got shell, goal after goal after goal, rained down our wobbly, easily tearful squad. U5 soccer, like many things in life, is a game of momentum. Uh, it didn't help that the kid on the other side of the, the other team went to kindergarten with my six-year-old boy. So these four-year-olds were playing a six-year-old, we think, or at least I hope, because he just took the ball to us over and over and over again. And so when we subbed and when we had breaks, uh, which were many because we broke after every goal, um, <laughs> I tried to huddle up my preschool squad, give them some strategy, give them some coaching pointers, maybe some encouragement. I just tried to say whatever I could say, really. And I want to just tell you what happened. This is amazing to me. Um, slowly over time, my seven-person squad dwindled. <laughs> it started with Claire, who refused to take the field at all. Never left her dad's lap. And then Hudson 
all of a sudden disappeared after his first substitution. I really didn't know where Hudson went. Uh, so uh, finally Hutton had to leave to go to go to his older sister's soccer game. So we lost him midway through. And so I crouched down kind of halfway, maybe two thirds of the, of the game, and I looked around at the four players I had left. <laughs> they looked tired. They looked like they were about to cry. <laughs> the score against us was well as the double digits, maybe 14 or so at that point. And so I tried some pure positivity, right? What are you going to do in these moments? I put on this huge smile, and I made myself say to them, you're doing great. <laughs> um, but I asked them two questions. Are we having fun? Are we going to score a goal? <laughs> <laughs> Um, there was this incredible silence under the four-year-olds in this huddle. And then I saw one Luke give a little small nod. And then I saw a few stares. And then my own precious daughter, <coughs> baby Millie Druin, sweet Millie Druin, four-year-old Millie Druin. She looked at me with her big blue eyes and her curly blonde hair, and she very clearly looked at me and said, no. <laughs> Millie had given up all hope. <laughs> all hope for fun, all hope for any goals. <laughs> like, <laughs> I get that that time and that place and the ages clearly of, uh, of these players was different than the disciple situation in the Bible. Okay? I'm going to pull this one off. But the emotion of the scene, I want to argue, in John chapter 6, is somewhat similar to that U5 soccer game. Um, I really do believe that. The crowd around Jesus is upset. Jesus' team, his disciples, are despairing. And in their fatigue and their frustration, their fickleness, they start to drop off like flies. Until only 12 of them are left, reluctant, but also maybe still a little bit hopeful. Perhaps you can relate to the 12 here, whether you're exploring Christianity or you're actively following Jesus. I mean, sometimes Jesus says something or doesn't say something. Sometimes the church, his church, Jesus' church, does or doesn't do something that can make it feel like a U5 soccer game that's going all wrong. I mean, it sometimes feels like the momentum is shifting, doesn't it? And like we're beyond positive coaching strategies. We have those moments. I have those moments. Sometimes I feel that way. I feel profoundly as a professional Christian. Okay, that's what I am. I'm a professional Christian. Okay, who represents this Jesus in that church. And this is exactly why I return to this passage again and again and again personally in my life. Um, if I had to choose a top five passage or a top three passage, even this would be one of them for me. Um, so it's very significant for me. And it's kept me... In, in the game, so to speak. U5 soccer game. Um, anyway, you see John chapter 6, verses 52 through 69, remind me about Jesus. Okay? I could try and leave the field or find another team, but there's no other person that I know who has the words of eternal life. There is no other person that I know that has the eternal words of life. John chapter 6 tells the story of this powerful reminder by describing the give and take that happens between Jesus and his hard but true words and the audience's very mixed response to Jesus' hard sayings. So our outline in your handout is going to address these two questions that are basic to the exchange. Okay, First, verses 52 through 65. 
what is Jesus saying that's so hard and so offensive? Okay? We're going to look at what exactly he's saying that's so hard and so offensive. And then second, verses 69 through, 66 through 69, how do we respond to Jesus? That is, how can and maybe should we respond to Jesus' hard sayings? Okay, we're going to look at those two things. So we're going to look at the what first, and then we're going to look at the so what second, if you want to kind of make it a little bit more shorthand. And that's what we're up to. And then usual, as usual, we're going to start at the beginning, the beginning and we're going to look first at the what, that is what Jesus is saying, and why it's so hard and potentially offensive. Uh, to his audience, them and us. So let's look at verses 52 through 65 together. And I understand it's a, it's, a, it's a ton of text that can be really complicated. So I'm going to do the best I can. Okay. The crowd, then the disciples, get the heart of our question. First in verse 52, and then in verses 60 and 61. And what I really appreciate in Jesus' response, he's open to the question. Okay, he's open to the complaint. Okay, And he helps define just what's so hard to hear, okay? He, Jesus, is not going to back down from saying who he is and how our search for satisfaction gets met. And he's got two points. These are the sub-points under, uh, under number one. Jesus is saying our deepest hungers and our deepest thirsts <coughs> are met in the flesh. Our deepest hungers and our deepest thirsts are met in his flesh, in the physical and here and now of Jesus. Okay. Secondly, he's saying in the spirit, uh, our deepest hungers and our deepest thirsts are met in Jesus' spirit. Okay. In the spiritual and divine, the always and forever. Okay. So we're going to look at those two ideas. And that's scandalous. What he's saying is extremely um, subversive for many, if not most people, there and here. Okay. So I'm going to start by unpacking what it means that Jesus meets our deepest hunger and thirst in flesh and blood and in history. Verse 52 summarizes the crowd's understanding of what Jesus has said for roughly 26 verses. Right before, okay? This is how this is their takeaway. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Woo! <laughs> it's going well for Jesus. Um, Jesus has called himself the bread of life in the verses before and now in verse 53 through 58. Jesus is telling his packed out synagogue, family spilling in the aisles and out the door. Jesus is telling them amid cries of babies and toddlers running around and people wiggling, Jesus is telling them to eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, or else you have no life in you. Verse 53. Huh. Crowd pleaser. Um, to understand what Jesus means, we've got to begin with the least weird thing that Jesus says. Okay, what's the least weird thing that Jesus says? It's still off-putting, but Jesus is actually talking about himself in the third person. Okay, he's calling himself the Son of Man. This is a, this is a title used for God in the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. So when he says the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, but he's also calling himself God. But we also need to understand that eating flesh and drinking blood of any kind um, was explicitly forbidden in the Old Testament in multiple places, the most strong verse being Leviticus 17, verses 10 through 11, because in the blood was life, and the life belonged to the Lord. Finally, when Jesus says life in this verse, and the, the verses following, he's referring to spiritual life. Okay, This is really important. And it's extremely clear in the Greek. He's using the word zoe over and over and over again. And zoe means spiritual life. 
When he wants to refer to physical, biological life, he uses the word bios. Okay, that's where we get biology. Okay, bios versus zoe. He's using zoe. He's talking about spiritual life in this passage over and over again. Okay, so he's clearly not talking about cannibalism. That's one takeaway we've got so far. Okay, and you see on you see Jesus on the heels. I just think I want you to see this. It's so important. Jesus has a string of successes. Okay, 24 hours of sensational miracles. He heals people. He feeds people. He walks on water, and he's making sure that he's not selling us something we don't want. I want you to see how clear he's trying to be. He's trying to tell that crowd. He's trying to tell us. He's trying to say, I'm not going to sell you something that you don't want. I want to be explicit about what I'm about. He's going out of his way to ratchet up the scandal level, not because he's some sort of first century shock jock that needs a following. Okay? He's ratcheting up the scandal level because he wants to name potential objections to following and believing in him. He wants to be clear from the outright. So I think this is good news if you're feeling especially cynical or skeptical tonight. Okay? You have to admit Jesus' honesty and his forthrightness about Christianity is profoundly attractive. Okay, he's putting it out there, and he's anticipating objections. And he's saying, this is a good shot, if not the best shot. Look, I get that Jesus is promising something big. He's saying that he can give us eternal life, zoe. Okay? A phrase in the Bible that doesn't just refer to like a happy afterlife, but also to present tense sense of eternal satisfaction. Okay? And verses 56 through 58 tell us that Jesus gives us this eternal satisfaction, real life rest, and real life connection as we open wide our hearts and bring our deep hunger and deep thirst to Jesus. Okay? By approaching Jesus and believing in Jesus, we can get Jesus' fullness spiritually in nibbles and gulps. Okay? That's what he's saying. But I want you to notice for the skeptics and the cynics among us, um, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, Jesus is the opposite of a slick used car salesman. He just is. He's not doing anything to get you into a clunker of faith. Okay? He's not trying anything. In verse 54, Jesus goes out of his way to describe faith with the Greek word for eat, it's trogon, which means to chomp down, to gobble up, to chew with loud lip smacking and gross animal grunting. Okay, that's, that's in the Greek sense of that word. Okay, it's what you talk about when pigs eat. That's the word that you use. Okay? And so basically Jesus is showing us the mileage on the odometer. He's showing us the depth. He's giving us the full previous access report of Christianity. For us to see eyes wide open how very strange it is. How very strange he is. The all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God of the universe had a known human name and a known human address. Okay? That is, God became flesh and blood, even Jesus of Nazareth. And we know that God best by his permanent residence, not temporary residence, the body of Jesus. That's so basically, Jesus sort of says the scandal of potentials of, of literal, physical cannibalism, eating and drinking the Son of Man, is there's actually a deeper offense underneath it that he's outing. Okay? He's basically trying to say that, um, that for those who take God seriously, the scandal of the words of Leslie Newbigin is that Jesus in his concrete humanity, flesh and blood, 
is the actual presence of the life of God in the midst of contingent happenings of human history. I know that's super complicated. I say it all the time. Okay? It's really important. Jesus in his concrete humanity, his flesh and blood, is the actual presence of the life of God in the midst of contingent happenings of human history. Let me give you the so on that one. Okay? You see, literalism and physicality is actually first on a God level. Then it's on a faith level. Okay? So literalism and physicality is first on a God level, then it's practicing our faith. So perhaps you can see sort of how Christians can believe in practices like communion or the Lord's Supper, where Christ is spiritually present in physical bread and physical wine that we physically eat and drink. I mean, look, if the last 24 hours with Jesus has shown his disciples anything, uh, theologian Martin Luther puts it beautifully to explain communion. <laughs> this is the takeaway. Jesus is, after all, good at miracles. <laughs> if there's one thing he's good at, he can do that. He can make the spiritual, physical, and the physical spiritual. That's what he does. And that's what he's been doing for the last 24 hours. Okay, But I think this is a really interesting objection. At the heart of this, there lies the, there, there's an objection to the fairness of God meeting our deep hunger in the flesh. And here's where the fairness argument comes in, okay? Jesus has claimed that God showed up in one man, in one time, in one culture, in human history, means that a certain man, a certain time, a certain culture, and a certain history is privileged over others. Just like how God is everywhere in the whole world, but then how come he's only especially spiritually present in things like physical bread and wine on particular Sundays? Does that make sense? So, like... He's everywhere, but he chooses to reveal himself in particular places, at particular times. And this strikes, if you're an American, it strikes you totally as undemocratic and unfair. Okay? This is the objection that I hear a lot. Okay? What about blank? What about that people? What about this people? Okay? The philosopher Leslie Newman again reminds us, though, that it's so important. If God doesn't act in history, what meaning can there be to say that God acts at all? <laughs> if God's not acting in history, what, is it, what does it matter if God acts at all? Okay? And to act in history requires a particular community among all communities, right? And, to, and basically, this community, starting with Jesus in the first century AD in Judea, has a universal mission, however. The universal mission is to welcome and invite any and every person and culture into that community, which is the church. Okay? So what he's trying to say, what Leslie is trying to get at with the fairness question, is, and it's a poor initial attempt, but he's trying to say that the gospel has to be particular because it's historical and true. However, it doesn't stop at particularity. It expands to universal. and invites every culture and every person that it can to jump in and join the party. Okay. And that's my attempt, albeit weak, to start to answer that fairness objection. Okay? But look how Jesus answers that fairness objection in verses 61 through 65. Notice Jesus doesn't apologize. He doesn't walk back his teaching when people start to get offended. And instead of verses 63 through 65, Jesus quote-unquote clarifies, I think air quotes one clarifies, our confusion by explaining that God in historical flesh is actually also God in eternal spirit. Oh, that's really that's really clarifying. Okay, so he's simultaneously God in historical flesh 
and equally, God and eternal spirit. That's letter B under point one for your outline. If you're actually even still trying to track, I know it's pretty confusing. Um, in verse 64, John tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning, a reference to eternity, who those were who would not believe. But then Jesus tells us how he knew. It is the spirit who gives life, verse 63. And no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father, verse 65. That is, Jesus in the flesh is also simultaneously one with God the Holy Spirit and one with God the Father. And God the Holy Spirit grants life, and God the Father grants people to come to Jesus. Okay. So, what's that all to say? Verse 65 is weighty and difficult. It has, it has a very certain take on how salvation works. Do you get that? Is everyone reading there? Okay. There's an emphasis on divine sovereignty in the very midst of human responsibility. The Father is granting a human choice. Okay. But I'm not going to actually try to explain the theological implications and applications of that. I've done a lot of philosophy and a lot of theology already. So what I'd like to do is instead try to give you the takeaway of that verse, the takeaway of verse 65, by sharing a story about one of my professors in graduate school, RTS of all places. Um, her name is Sharon Hirsch, uh, and she's a counseling professor. Okay, if you met Sharon for any significant amount of time, you would, she would tell you, she would volunteer that she is an alcoholic. She has been in and out of counseling, hospitals, and rehab for her drinking uh, up to the very present. And one of her very first times of treatment, Shannon would look in the mirror every day and repeat, they told her to look in the mirror every day and repeat, Sharon, I forgive you. And at first, she felt so much self-hatred, she could barely lift her eyes to look at herself in the mirror. Over the course of the week, her compassion grew, her acceptance grew, and so at the end of the week, she found herself saying, looking in the mirror, and then she said this, Sharon, Sharon, you don't have the power to forgive yourself. Sharon, you don't have the power to forgive yourself. She couldn't say, Sharon, I forgive you. Listen to the way that Sharon Hirsch describes why she said this in her book, Philosophy. I knew that family and friends would forgive me, but there were things they didn't know about or understand. I knew I needed something more, something other than myself. Sharon knows that she needs a God. She needed a God who was full of forgiveness and who does the work of full forgiveness. Does that make sense? Jesus, whose wounds one year later from this passage on the cross, though he, his wounds alone can heal deep wounds under the skin surface. Jesus, whose fullness of divine life, his divine life alone, can start to fill the hungering, emptying pockets of our souls. Later in the last addiction, Sharon returns the image of looking into a mirror and looking at herself and her body. And she writes this, I can stare in the mirror and see desperation's hideous reflection. Yet how sad if I cannot also see the reflection of the most holy. We can value ourselves only by grasping how much God loves us. We can value ourselves only by grasping how much God loves us. There's a humility in this passage, but also in Sharon's story, of giving God credit for our forgiveness. 
whether it's for too much drinking or too much work, whether it's for too little self-control or too little benefit of the doubt. That humility to let God say who you are is the very beginning. It starts the feast of eternal satisfaction. That's where it starts. Allowing God to be the forgiver. To believe that we can value ourselves only by grasping how much God loves us. And this hard book of truth actually leads us to our second point, verses 66 through 69. And the final question, how do we respond to Jesus and what he's saying? The so what question, okay? Verse 66 makes it clear that many, the vast majority of the disciples, found what Jesus said was way too hard and way too uncomfortable to bear with. And they just left. They left Jesus. But notice that Jesus doesn't chase after them. And just like he's comfortable with questions, Jesus allows for disagreement. He allows, in this case, for a very personal disagreement with what he's saying and who he is. So he returns to the remaining 12 disciples, and even to us, and he asks us this important question. Do you want to go away as well? Actually, a better translation, according to the Greek grammar, would be, you don't want to leave too, do you? It's implying a negative answer, a no answer. You don't want to leave too, do you? And then, as usual, we find Simon Peter pipe up, right? He's the first to speak. He speaks for himself. He speaks for the remaining 12 followers. He speaks for us in the story. And he says it beautifully. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter Miller and Peter Hyatt, Paul Miller and Peter Hyatt, call this act of faith to bring Jesus our emptiness, our needs, our inability. It's to, to say this, I can't, but you can, so we can. I can't, but you can, so we can. I, I really love the way that Michael Carr describes the scene. He describes his confession as loyal despair, <laughs> perhaps spoken through clenched teeth and shaking fists. Where else am I going to go? And this is why this passage is a personal favorite for me. It's so real about life, it's so real about Jesus, and even ministry, how they sometimes can feel. Clenched teeth, shaking fists, but a rocky resolve. It makes me think about my own personal search for satisfaction in my life. The way I've tried to fill what writer Frederick Buechner calls the empty place of our deepest desire. The way I first found something that touched my life when I was in high school. I started reading the Tao Te Ching and listening to Bob Dylan. The way that taste of peace led me in college to study East Asian contemplative contemplation to spend a summer trying to visualize and meditate um, in the practice of Buddhism and Taoism and even Hinduism, um, along with trying to wrestle with um, a high school uh, experience with existentialism. But it was so difficult. It was so much, even in the midst of that summer of practice, so much of me saying who I was by my mental control or my behavior trying to construct an identity for the watching world. The way the fall of my sophomore year, less than a week from this very date, 
the way I first encountered Jesus' words of eternal life is impossible not to remember. Because I began to study Christianity relentlessly. Okay? And here's what's so interesting to me about my own personal faith, my own personal experience, but I think also generally the Christian faith at large, okay? It's the very hardest things that Jesus says in this passage. The very hardest things about Christianity's particularity in that scandal, that God became a flesh and blood body that makes it sound, sound and stand out especially as true and historical. It's the very scandal of Christianity's grace that the Jesus' spirit offers forgiveness before we get our mental and behavioral act together. That makes it stand out as life-giving. God, absolutely, no question, no doubt, 100% wants to be with all of me. Look, by no means is my personal conversion to Christianity or even my continued study of world religion and world world philosophies is that exhausted by any means. It's my experience, but I really can resonate with what Peter says here, okay? And he's saying it's true and it feels right. (laughs) Jesus' truth and his love is at the very least, at the very least, the best ones around. But let me prove that point to you by telling you a story, another story of a daughter, this time not Middle East, and a dad, this time not me. Okay? And it's one of the best stories I have that gives it what I think is so unique about the words of eternal life. What's so life-giving about what Jesus has to offer. Okay? It's about what the Bible calls grace. Which I think is unique in the best of what's around. Some of you have heard this story, but one day a little girl uh, comes outside and she sees her older sister hanging clothes on a clothesline, and he's, she's hanging up her father's business shirts, the button downs, and immediately she wants to help and show her daddy that she loves her. Okay, and so she takes one of the white button-down shirts and she tries to hang on the clothesline, but she's too short and she can't reach it. Okay, and so she looks around, and all of a sudden she sees the perfect thing to hang it on, the handles of a wheelbarrow. And so she looks at the wheelbarrow, shining in the sun. It's just the right height for daddy's shirt. But she doesn't notice how rusty the little girl handles are. And so she just smiles and she hangs up Daddy's wet dress shirt on the metal handles. When her dad gets home, she grabs his hand, she drags him out to the yard, and she says, Dad, Dad, I, I gotta show you. I hung your shirt. It's your favorite white shirt, and I hung it just right. Look at what I did for you. And he picks up the shirt, and what does he see? Right across the front giant, rusted, iron streaks. And he starts to yell at this girl. It's a true story. He yells at her, his youngest daughter, and he severely punishes her. And so, fast forward a few years, and this woman's in counseling. Okay, And she's talking to her counselor, who's a Christian. And he asks her, well, if God was your daddy, what do you think he would she thinks about it. I mean, how would God have reacted to this wet shirt on the wheelbarrow, on the rusty wheelbarrow handles? And she thinks about it and she says, I guess he would forget the shirt and, you know, maybe just hug me, just forget about it. And the counselor says this, you still don't really understand God. God wouldn't overlook the shirt. He would take it, he would put it on, and he'd wear it to work. 
And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would pull that person aside. He said, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she absolutely loves me. I love her. I like being around her. And I just can't get enough of her. Listen, do you get that's God? And that's the promise of eternal life. Where else is that? But in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, God is bragging about you right out of the angels. Every angel flits by. He grabs his sleeve. He talks to me. He says, let me tell you about my son and daughter. And every little thing that we do, every feeble act of faith, every feeble little gesture of love is proudly scotch-taped on the refrigerator in heaven from all the way to the top to all the way to the bottom. You see, God the Father loves you. He loves you. He's so very proud of you. God gets to say who you are forever. And his words about who you are and the Holy One are full of life. And I want you to hear them again. And here's what they say. God absolutely, no question, no doubt, 100% wants to be with you. All of you. Even the real needy you that you don't show to anybody else. Maybe even especially the hungers and the thirsts that other people don't know about or even begin to understand. That's your dad. And no one else is telling you about him but his son, Jesus. And that's what this passage is scandalous about. And that's why I return over and over again to this passage. Because I need to hear it over and over and over again. Because I forget it so easily. It's so hard to dismiss that. It's so hard to not dismiss that. It's so hard to believe it. And I challenge you to sit in that, even as I pray. Father, thanks for this time with students. Thanks for just the way that you have people show us what you're like. That we just don't even believe it. And it just we want to dismiss it as as saccharine and sweet and low. And I, I just thank you that you shake and you shake and you shake and you say deal, deal with this. Um, that this is a message that we don't hear and we don't have to hear. And I pray that you give us ears to hear it and hearts to believe it and hands to grasp it. And that you help us to taste it. And help us to swig it down. Father, uh, be merciful to us. Remind us of who you are and how much you care about us and Jesus. Son's name, pray.